Hello, all you clip clickers out there. My name's Tom Quilfell, and joining me for volume 11 of Cane and Rinse, issue 535, are James Carter. Click. <laughs> Jesse Fuchs. Hello. Ryan Jow. Hi there. And we're here to talk about nothing less than Universal Paperclips, an epic Souls-like action-adventure with RPG mechanics, deep lore, a Wagnerian soundtrack, and, of course, I am talking nonsense. It's actually a 2017 uh, clicker or incremental game, or if we're feeling derogatory, like Walking Sim, we could say an idle game, which is not really, but we'll get to that, where the player uh, role-playing as an AI uh, optimizes their production of paperclips while unlocking various story beats and gags, new mechanical elements and choices, and ultimately hurtles towards converting all matter in the known cosmos into office stationery. Spoiler warning, I guess this game can be spoiled. It can, really. Uh, so, yes, we will be spoiling this game. I think because there's sort of it's not a traditional game as such, uh, it was developed mainly by uh, one chap called Frank Lance. And uh, we have a cane and rinse here. I, I, I was actually the one who chose Universal Paperclips um, for this volume. Uh, however, as it turns out, one of our panellists has a quite a strong connection to the sort of mainly sole developer on this game. So I wonder, Jesse, could you give us a little introduction, a potted history of, of Frank and, and tell us a bit about his kind of who he is and his design philosophy. Yeah, Frank, uh, I mean, I met him because he was uh, one of the founders and the director of the NYU Game Center, where I have taught, uh, I've talked about teaching, you know, the, the class on the 80s games, etc. Um, and so, yeah, I know Frank because he, uh, for a long time, was the director of the NYU Game Center. And in fact, is the person uh, who hired me along with Eric Zimmerman to teach there. I owe him a lot, and uh, I will disclose my bias, uh, you know, as a person, you know, 10 out of 10, no notes. Uh, <laughs> I have my critiques of Universal Paper Clubs that we'll get to. But in terms of his, his history, he is someone who started uh, kind of in in the general arts, the liberal arts, like Eric, who he met working on a game called Gearheads in 1996, which is kind of an emergent, you, you sort of program these toys and they're trying to get across the table to the other side and bopping into each other and shooting each other. Uh, so, you know, a lot of emergent strategy. And, and one thing I can very much say about Frank knowing him is that he is extremely good at strategy games and has a lot like just has a natural. He's, he's a good go player, uh, like a real good go player. Um, he um, he just tears apart Michael Bro games like uh, Imbroglio or um, Cinco Paz. I think he has one of the top 10 high scores on um, and so just has that kind of brain but got involved in uh, games, I think, in New York. And this is something I, you know, have talked to him about a little, but don't know the full history of. But I very much get a sense, as someone who is never a real professional game designer for a living, uh, but did it sort of as a side thing, uh, that if you were to make a living as a game designer in New York for about 10 years there, you know, sort of the, the, the late 90s, the late 2000s at least, you're probably doing advert gaming. And there's kind of a fascinating history of advert gaming to be written by someone because there's a lot of 
like you made a lot of games very quickly. You know, the, he, he ran a company called Area Code uh, that was founded in 2005 and then acquired by Zynga in 2010, became Zynga New York for a few years. But yeah, you know, made games that were um, there's a Sopranos reruns on A&E. And so uh, he made a very clever game where you're trying to you unlock Sopranos characters through doing things A&E wants you to do, like watching commercial or whatever, but then you're arranging them on a board and you're trying to spatially set it up so that people in the same scene are contiguous with each other so that you will score points. Like, and I would say, you know, I, it, when you know someone, you don't like try to figure out like what's their through life. Like, I don't know, he's a, he's a good guy. I enjoy talking to him. But, you know, preparing for this episode, certainly I've been thinking a little more about that. And I think there is a common thread, and this has a lot to do with the philosophy of the Game Center of high concept with follow through, right? The idea that you, you, all of his games, and, and one reason I might want to briefly talk about kind of the history of them is like, like that, they're pretty easy to pitch, right? Like, I can say that. That's a clever uh, game. There was a, a game that he did for the Discovery Channel. Uh, and Shell Oil uh, called Power Planets that was sort of a circular, like a, a one-dimensional line sim game, essentially, or, you know, just sort of going around a circle. And you had to manage the world's transition to clean energy. And the twist was that every three days, it was kind of uh, in that late 2000s, like, you know, a lot of real-time asynchronous multiplayer stuff that they were doing. Uh, every three days, your planet would be given to someone else, and you would get someone else's planet. Uh, and so, and I forget what philosopher, like there's, you know, a John Rawls curtain kind of aspect to that or something. And certainly Frank has a lot of interest in philosophical concepts, I, you know, and, and in them in a deep way, but also more in a cultural, just like that's a neat idea sort of way, right? That, that, um, as, as reference points and touchstones, like Nick Bostrom's paperclip maximizing AI example, which I'm sure mm. we'll, we'll get to, but he, yeah. uh, area code design drop seven, which is a pretty famous early mobile game, uh, which started as ad for gaming for the TV show numbers. It was a, a game within the show, some evil math genius, right? I, I don't really know numbers, but it's, I think it's a show where a detective solves things with math, which is nice. Uh, but that game was really good. It was just an incredibly well-designed puzzle game. And so it became its own game, Drop 7, which, yeah, Edge gave a 10 out of 10, which, you know, retroactively a few years later, which is kind of amazing. Uh, and um, I do remember him being extremely happy to find out that Lisa Kudrow had, had tweeted about how it's like her favorite mobile game. Uh, so... Yeah, and, and then for uh, Zynga, they never released anything. It was a very interesting time because they made this game called The Friend Game in uh, 2012, which was the only fun thing I ever did on Facebook and like was kind of this simple, brilliant kind of like party game, kind of like, you know, you answer questions and people you about other people and maybe you're right or you're wrong. And I remember discovering that everyone, for some reason, thinks I'm left handed that uh, me and the current director of the Game Center uh, were very, we, we were quote unquote soulmates because we were able to just guess exactly what each other was thinking at all times. <laughs> the administrator, on the other hand, guessed uh, my preferences less than random chance would dictate. So it was it was actually quite informed. You know, obviously I've uh, retained 
more from that than any other Facebook game I played. But I guess they couldn't figure out how to monetize it and it never came out. And then Zynga New York stopped. And another interesting thing, you know, the through line you've said about high concept, but follow through, but also, you know, working on non-traditional hardcore gaming platforms here as well. You know, browsers, mobile phones, um, just just not on a PlayStation, not on an Xbox. Right. And and. Frank likes those games and he definitely plays. He is, he has, I would say, somewhat idiosyncratic and, and occasionally trolly tastes. I do remember him once telling me that uh, The Witcher 3, uh, a game I am fairly neutral on, but he called it a busy box, uh, which I actually thought of when I was playing Universal Paper Clips because Universal Paper Clips is there's a certain amount of busy boxness to it that I guess we'll get to when we talk about is it an idle game, right? In a good way, but just that idea of. He's more interested in the ideas on some level and and doesn't have an enormous amount of time for cinematic games or even there. I mean, I would say the one thing we'll get to Universal Bayport Clips, as you're saying, it is spoilable. And I can't think of any other game he's ever made that you could say that about. Uh, and it's, it's and uh, in terms of, again, it's just such a non-traditional game to talk of compared to other Ken and Rince titles. This is. It's hard to talk about sales. The game came out as a free web game in 2017 and kind of broke the servers a bit. It was very popular. The stat I have here is 450,000 people played that that version of it in the first 11 days. And it was a bit of a viral hit and crashed the servers once or twice. Uh, and then later came out uh, as a paid uh, mobile version. Uh, I believe in 2018. I couldn't find exactly where, but in the yeah, it was in the yeah, okay, in the app update notes on the iPhone, it says it four, was at four least out ago. by the 29th of March 2018 because I bought it on Android then, <laughs> and I seem to remember buying that for fi- for a fiver. So I, I genuinely hope that Frank uh, did well out of that. Um, uh, so so yeah, so it's but but I have no sales figures for that we should get our histories out the way mm. so um jesse why don't you since you've you, you know i think yeah, you've probably I, done half your history if not most of it already why don't you quickly fill us on on, on when you actually first played this game yeah i didn't play test it i knew he was working on it uh and i don't know there's always a lot of games going around and for whatever reason i think i saw it on a screen once and i was like well, that looks like a clicker game <laughs> and i i know about nick bostrom's paperclip he had told me the idea. I was like, that's cool. That sounds like, you know, again, a good way to, to good game to program if you're trying to figure out how to program. And uh, then the next thing I knew it was out on browser. And then um, I do now remember it just occurred to me. The one funny thing is that I like didn't get some work done because the game came out that night for uh, <laughs> the school. And, and it was that very, I don't know. I was also auditing someone else's class uh, yesterday, a class Frank approved spreadsheets and game design, which is a really fascinating class uh, taught by uh, fellow adjunct Alexander King uh, that Frank, you know, was very interested in universal paper clips is, you know, kind of a very spreadsheety game. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't sure to feel guilty or not for sneaking universal paper clips play into auditing this other professor's class. Uh, <laughs> and I definitely like just got sucked in. I was like, damn you, Frank. But I was also like, <laughs> oh, good. you know, I, I have there's no better excuse. At least this is my boss's game. And yeah, I enjoyed it. I played it through. I don't think I finished it in browser. I think I got stuck on the spaceship thing somehow. Then when it came out on mobile, I played it once when it came out, 
once, I don't know, about eight months ago, uh, and am like in the middle of a game replaying it uh, as we speak. <laughs> right this second. Excellent. I mean, the numbers are going up. I'm not. I'm not That's very that. much in the spirit of it. Uh, uh, James, uh, when did you first uh, come across Universal Paperclips? Yeah, so I definitely heard people on, uh, on podcasts talk about this game back in 2017, and then it popped up. I tend to keep an eye on what's coming out on not so much anymore, but certainly back in 2018 uh, and for kind of the 10 years prior, just keep an eye on what's coming out on mobile, just because it's interesting to see what sort of games end up being put onto mobile that I've otherwise heard people talk about, because there's not many of them amongst what comes out on mobile. So I picked this up on Android in March, 2018. I, thought I played the browser version first, but no record of it in my spreadsheet that I keep with exhaustive lists of what I play. <laughs> and I, I I remember finishing this game, but when I look at my play record, uh, I started playing it uh, a couple of weeks after I bought it uh, in April, and I put down for finished NA, which I put down for games that can't be finished, hmm. which this game obviously can. So I remember finishing it, or I remember getting to what I thought was an endpoint, but looking at that, I unless I assumed it and just never went back and corrected that, I don't have a record of when I actually Well, there is first a choice it. where you can choose to kind of, where if you didn't know, you can kind of accidentally tip over into New Game Plus. Sure, yeah, so but possi- I think it's still, that would still, I would mark that down as having completed the game, I would have thought, but I didn't. Mm. So uh, I, I can't be 100% sure I finished it then. But uh, then, uh, obviously, in preparation for this, I... Um, Started another playthrough on Android on the 15th of August, finished it on the 16th. That's just (laughs) the way my life goes with something like this. And then I started on the browser version and stuck to playing on that because the the mobile version, there's a lot more scrolling around the page than I actually would like. Uh, And the browser, I can just like, not full screen because it's like very vertical, half screen it on my monitor alongside whatever else I'm supposed to be doing. I finished a playthrough on the 22nd of August and the 23rd of August and the 24th of August, and the 25th of August, and the 27th. It's just, I played (laughs) through this game about once a day for a good 10 days there. A little bit of just uh, trying the two different endings, uh, I guess two different endings roughly, and trying different strategies, and then looking up uh, what a speedrun looks like, and making some notes as to what strategies I want to try. Uh, Eventually got a playthrough down to 3 hours 25 which from my first playthrough being about eight hours, I think, is is obviously much, much quicker. Nowhere near the one hour, th- I think 36 was the quickest I saw, but that might have been beaten by now. And a playthrough I started today but didn't finish, I got to stage three at one hour and 56 minutes. So I'm getting there. I'm getting faster, but I can't. Clearly, like what I've just said, tells me that I have a problem when it comes to just like <laughs> getting home from work and putting this on, just sitting there for you know three hours straight playing this game and trying to optimize it is uh, dangerous stuff. So let's let uh, Ryan give uh, give us yeah, yeah, his sure. history. Yeah, I've played a number of incremental games before. I think I started with Cookie Clicker. I played that through a f- two or three times now. Um, the first time before they added, I mean, that game is kind of perpetually in development. And it seems like every time that I go back every few years, there's like an entire new like side of the game that just wasn't there before. And so, you know, that's been kind of a constant companion, so to speak. Every few years, I'll go back to it um, for, for many years now. I, I've played through, what, Adventure Capitalist and uh, Clicker Heroes as well. 
and um, recently Pokey Clicker, like a Pokemon game that is like a like an incremental game as well that in, that kind of incorporates a lot of Pokemon uh, genre mechanics to make and to give it a little bit more like focus and direction and uh, kind of gamify some of those elements even further. And this is always one that, you know, on the lists of not necessarily the origins of the genre, because this is like a relatively more recent one. I was kind of surprised with how recent it was, since it's one of those games that felt like it just kind of always existed in the background somewhere. But uh, yeah, this one and like A Dark Room, I, I think it was called, uh, are, are ones that people kind of frequently point to as kind of stripping out a lot of the artifice and just being like very, very kind of plainly mechanically driven. And I guess that's the entire genre. Like there's not a lot of artifice there to begin with. Um, that's kind of the appeal of them. It's just the numbers and uh, and the math behind it. But yeah, I, I played this one a few years ago. I got kind of you know curious just because of my other explorations in the genre. I didn't make it all the way to the end back then. I think there just wasn't as much of a as much of like an as an uh, aesthetic hook as some of the other ones like uh, Cookie Clicker. I think really goes kind of above and beyond as far as presentation goes within the scope of what we can expect from incremental games you know it's still a pretty simple visual presentation but the storytelling and the ways that the visuals change throughout that game i think is uh one of the more lavish examples in the in the genre but yeah i don't know i was always kind of interested in going back and finally finishing this one especially since it was a game that had a definite conclusion and um it's not a grace you're always afforded in this genre and so, you know, that is a that is a nice thing there. And then uh, a game that doesn't take that long to play through, like most of these incremental games are meant to be enjoyed over the course of like months or years, even, you know, as, as some of these reset cycles um, really kind of stretch out and uh, the, the incremental rewards that they give you along the way to exponentially increase your progress are doled out over the course of of days or weeks even so um yeah i was always kind of found it appealing this idea of one that is meant to be a little bit more bite-sized um and uh you know something that can kind of get in show us what it has to say or comment upon the genre and then get out without being too disruptive over the uh the lives of people that it (laughs) comes in contact with which the genre can be a little bit attention destructive for those of us who, like myself, have uh, perhaps a little bit of uh, procrastinative tendencies and trouble uh, reprioritizing towards more important things in life. So, um, yeah, I appreciate how kind and and generous this one was by comparison. Awesome. So I, um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, 2018. I think I just picked up a bit of hype from wherever podcasts and stuff grabbed the mobile version devoured it in a day like james just it works the the addictive nature of this works i do remember um my wife and i discovering candy box back in 2013 i think that was my introduction to the clicker genre that being sort of the novelty of it being really interesting at the time, but also, but that getting quite frustrating. I, I seem to remember that particular game grinding to a halt. Um, it having some fun, surprising kind of module stuff like uh, Universal Paperclicks, but it, but it also grinding to a halt at various points. 
and just essentially stopping being fun. Uh, so I think with the memory of that coming into Universal Paperclips, like you, Ryan, I was glad that it had a finish and actually so glad that I went and started it immediately after finishing it. Potentially, I guess, trying to, yes, like James, streamline the experience or whatever. But yeah, really taken with it as a gaming experience and then um, chose it for Kane and Rince because, well, I just with a young family, it's difficult to... When you get to pick your Kane and Rince game, ideally, I just need to pick something that's that's first and foremost just quick to replay. That's not a hundred hour RPG. However, I picked everything last volume. I sort of feel like a bit, you know, bit of responsibility to chuck in some grenades in here in terms of you know just weird games that might not naturally come up against your AAA games and stuff like that. Not to be sort of provocatively arty because it's still an interesting and great game to play or whatever Uh, it's still a good recommendation for the audience but just just to zag a bit where others might zig so so yeah so very happy to replay it over the last couple of days on mobile i completed it on uh browser i actually left it running overnight um last night on browser and it basically completed itself and uh, there was the message from the emperor of the of the drift um and i was a bit disappointed i was like oh that was easy i just you just got to leave it running and and walk away and that'll do it for you but let us um dive into the settings in the theme i just like to grab a quote from the wired interview that frank did frank lance did he says uh, as a contrarian one reason i wanted to make a clicker game is that they're considered gutter culture they're easy to make and they tap into a very virulent addictive quality like slot machines uh so that seems to be his well at that moment when he was talking to that journalist that was what was on his mind um so so yeah i mean we we've talked a lot around already the themes the setting i guess i'd bring in just to set you guys off the humor as well i think this is quite a funny game in sort of a sci-fi hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy a little bit way and we could also, we'll touch on a little bit later, the sparseness of it as well. But uh, yeah, what do you guys think about the the setting and the, and the themes of the game? As you were talking there, I think Portal, uh, especially, I would actually probably both games. I think, the, yeah, Portal going from the beginning of Portal 1 to by the end of Portal 2. But also another game that came to mind is the Stanley Parable, something mm. that puts you in a very anodyne like common setting one we understand but is very bare boring dull like very straightforward setup and then just by giving you binary choice after binary choice just runs away with itself and and i think that comes to mind when i think of universal paperclips as well and again that that doesn't necessarily have a strict sci-fi setting but it goes to silly places by starting from a very unsilly premise really and just allowing to to say an algorithm like that's obviously a very charged word in some ways but the rules of the game to allow you to go so far beyond what you would think the scope of the game would be well i think that what what your point is is that there's fun and humor here beyond the min maxing there's actually a sense yeah there's a sense of humor in here there's a sense of yeah 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 storytelling yeah definitely yeah now that's that is i think one of the sub goals was as I said, I don't think Frank has a published game that you would really say has a story. And, you know, this has beats and pacing. 
you control the pacing to some extent. You can do things in different order, but you know it's kind of going to lead you through a fairly linear uh, series of major events, not unlike Disco Elysium does. Even though you got a lot of wiggle room there too, there is you know a very uh, set plot line. Um, I don't know if Frank has ever experimented with writing fiction, right? But I don't think that is something that he has really dabbled in in the same way that I know he he has painted to them or, you know, has done some more abstract things or has like an extremely uh, strong interest in kraut rock. You know, like uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure he reads. He, he's definitely a very literate person, but he, he's not someone who randomly picks up a great work of literature. He's someone who randomly picks up a Nick Bostrom book. Um, and um, I I think it was to some extent seeing the the incremental game format as yeah you're 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 const- it allows you to construct this storyline and and the storyline he's going for is like well what if we really played this out right let's take this idea and and what would it be like from the inside which is i think uh, a mm-hmm. general interest of him and in in terms of games as systems of you know, there's a certain point where in fiction you can kind of BS things away. Plot armor or, you know, where, where it can essentially be incoherent as a system. But, you know, it's a magician's trick. If you keep the, the, the reader entertained, you're not going to worry about that. Whereas when you make a thing that is a actual system, you know, it has to actually uh, function um, and tell its story by functioning. Uh, and I think I think that challenge definitely interested in him and i do think also he likes big ideas he is definitely a person who has more of an in i have some interest in sort of you know uh to put it in the most pejorative way like silicon valley ted talk futurism right uh which is not necessarily how i think of it uh because some of it is very smart but he definitely has more of an interest in that kind of the, the you know recently there's been talk about long termism and effective altruism and i'm not quite sure what his position is on that but i'm i bet it's a little more sympathetic than mine is which is not totally unsympathetic either but you know with regard to the themes of the game like i think that the original philosophical thought experiment is pulling a lot of the weight there but where this game i think becomes valuable is that it kind of situates that thought experiment within the realm of video games and you know in just like recontextualizing like a very straightforward retelling of that story essentially um kind of putting us in the role of that ai um kind of forcing us to think in a way of uh, kind of a disembodied and um, emotionless min-maxing along the way. I think it kind of invites us to compare this this horror of an approaching finality to that which should ostensibly be infinite. Compare that to like our other gameplay experiences that we might be kind of playing alongside of this. And you know, I think about like. Back when The Sims was originally developed, I, I have a memory, and I, I couldn't cite author names or anything like that. It's been too long, and I apologize for that. But like, there were people who were writing articles like, these Sims seem to have very, <laughs> very complex and thoughtful lives. Like, at what point do we say it's not okay to keep playing with them like dolls? You know, <laughs> at what point do we just have to let them live their lives because they are 
self-actualized or self-realized enough to deserve that little bit of autonomy. And, you know, it might be, it might seem a little bit silly, like with our current, like technologies to consider at what point do we have to start allowing rights to these digital beings. But if you think about it within the context of like the game worlds, and if you give them like a little bit of imagined, considering them like a lower reality in and of themselves, you know, if we think about like Grand Theft Auto V, for instance, a very thorough and a very like feels like a very living recreation or a simulation of an actual space. And as the main characters, like we are willing to do anything in that world and, and behave in, in monstrous ways in hopes of just having fun for ourselves or in hopes of, uh, you know, making our money number rise and and tick up further and we feel morally justified in doing so because we exist or the the main character rather who is a part of that world and is just as real as anyone else in that world should have the same level of moral consideration as anyone else in that world but we feel that that main character is special because he has a he has a special relationship to somebody in a super reality, which is our own. And, you know, we have bestowed our higher dignity into him because, you know, we exist and nobody else does. Whereas, you know, if that character is playing a video game within the video game, then presumably the character that he is controlling exists and no one else does. And who knows, we might be characters in a video game of our own <laughs> and we might not exist to the functional degree that somebody in the super reality above us exists. And maybe we are just as expendable <laughs> as anyone else. And so, you know, I think like these kind of like swirling circular logics of um, kind of philosophical thought experiments, uh, like kind of come to bear in this kind of bare bones, like the way that it's presented is so stark and black and white and spreadsheety and kind of boring. I don't think that would be contentious to say this is a boring looking game, <laughs> but like it, it does so to get us thinking like a machine and presents us with this kind of growing um, narrative of this inhuman horror, this, this kind of, cosmic Lovecraftian horror um, that emerges and and that kind of like over time puts our actions into into judgment silently and uh, causes us to be self-reflective. And then I think at, as being a video game just kind of asks us to ask similar questions of the other games that we play, even stuff like Animal Crossing. Like, are we are we truly honoring the people who natively live in that <laughs> space or are we just using them as, you know, steps to get to the next goal that we set for ourselves as members of the super reality. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, those are excellent point guy, points, guys. I think we should um, hear a bit of uh, forum feedback and um, I'm sure we will, we will keep touching upon this stuff as, as we move on to yeah, gameplay and other things, because it, you know, it's such a, 
singular game in some ways and and, uh, these themes will keep coming up and we will talk about the the story such as it is a little bit later when we talk about the progression as well so a bit of uh, uh, forum feedback from Calder Frog Um, I have the web version of Universal Paperclips open as I start typing this I had some background on the game having watched Jacob Geller's excellent YouTube video The Horror of Universal Paperclips and Space Engine but it's been a while so the details were foggy I immediately ran the business into the <laughs> I immediately ran the business into the ground fiddling with the price per clip to see what would happen. This prompted a button asking if I wanted to give up to gain trust. Having effectively already lost, I figured it wouldn't hurt to also give up. I'm a web developer, so I popped the browser developer tools to see what was happening. I knew that the game had something to do with very large numbers, so I was curious to see if I could understand the code. Of course, I accidentally spoiled myself by seeing the HTML page with without the styling, as if there were, <laughs> there's not that much styling, um, hiding the text yet to appear. I can see that there's an entire file dedicated to combat, which is unexpected. The JavaScript isn't even minified, which means it's quite readable. I've only dipped my toes into uh, the Universal Paperclips experience, but I get the feeling that constant growth is probably not good for me or society. This is about as low a level of visual polish and interactivity you can get for a game, which also makes it interesting from a why is this compelling standpoint. For some reason, number go bigger works on our brains better than expected. And when the game is popping out quotes from Napoleon, Kenneth Arrow and Louis Kahn, is asking to be examined. It's also memorable for me for being the first game that I have opened the code up and can somewhat understand. Um, just in the in terms of aesthetics, there are, as far as I can tell, there's two different pieces of music, uh, I think, across the two different versions of the game. Um, as far as I can tell, I could be wrong about this. When you activate one of the Threnodies, which are um, sort of ballads for the the war against the drift, I believe. Um, I think in the browser-based version, it's a track called River Song from the 1971 album Zero Time uh, by uh, Tonto's expanding headband. Um, that uh, is not to everybody's taste. I've seen some, some complaints about that one as it sort of drones on a bit. Um, it's But it's a fun moment because there's sort of absolutely no audio mm. And then you trigger this thing and then suddenly there's music. And then I believe, and I could be wrong about this, in the mobile version is actually a track by the you know fairly well-known artist Fortet, a track called Ten Midi, um, which is also in the, is mentioned in the credits of the, when you finish the mobile version. But um, yeah, it go, you can go four or five hours with absolutely zero audio. There's nothing, no sound effects of which to speak at all. No button clicks, nothing. Which, and which then makes suddenly it, a little bit. It makes it bizarre in the mobile version because I always go into options first just to check that there's no setting that I particularly want to uh, change, and there's audio settings in there, and it's like, what? Why? Yeah. <laughs> for, for like eighty percent of the game, it's why? What, yeah. Why is this here? I, I'm not sure. As a as a sort of you know games music guy, I'm not sure. Uh, the music, the kind of the music moment hits home that. It didn't hit me that hard any of the times I played it, unfortunately. You would have thought if you waited that long to introduce audio that it would be for some sort of very special or secret moment. So I don't, I couldn't say that the, the, either the track choice or the or the sort of timing of it worked 
quite that well. Another uh, game I mentioned earlier, Space Plan, uh, a clicker that ends that's not too dissimilar, came out the same year, has a, a very beautiful, actually, you know, um, music moment. Um, so I, I recommend if people did want <laughs> some, like, sort of aesthetic payoff, uh, that maybe they should uh, uh, check that out. But um, anyone have any thoughts on the lack of sound or the sudden introduction of music? I think there's a uh, problem, actually, uh, just hearing you talk about it and thinking about my own experience. By nature of this being a clicker game, we can debate whether it's actually true that you can be doing other things at the same time and not paying attention to it. Obviously, you can. You can just leave it sitting there and it will carry on on its own, uninterfered with to some degree. Those types of games tend to lend themselves to listening to a podcast or doing something else or, you know, in my case, having a YouTube video on where suddenly I've got this blaring music and I'm looking at the YouTube video thinking... do they know that they're playing this? And then I look back over at my browser and I see the little speaker icon and realize, no, no, it's coming from the game. I just completely did not clock that um, that was coming from the, the game because it was different music to what I'd heard in the mobile version. And that that's an issue is that people are going to have other stuff playing, which by necessity kind of impacts the, or kind of lessens the impact that having that music suddenly play is kind of meant to have. I assumed by the choices of the music, it was meant to um, lean into the sci-fi sort of galactic scope of what was going on. And this was now, uh, you were starting to get a sense that there were other beings watching what you were doing and there you know that that's what the that's what the kind of poetry or the quotes and the music were meant to start to give you a sense of the kind of philosophical side and the what's going on behind the scenes but yeah i think because it's quiet for on my first playthrough 6 hours before you get any music coming through it means that you're kind of encouraged to think right i don't need to pay attention to any audio for this game and then when it does come in if you're not careful which you why would you be it can kind of uh, lessen the impact unfortunately but but yeah, I mean maybe there is someone out there who did have a wonderful experience oh, where yeah. it's sort of you know they weren't expecting it and suddenly this very meditative thing came out of nowhere and it it caught them by surprise and gave them a moment of clarity. But uh, not any of not any of us by the sounds of it. But we should uh, we should talk about we should talk about the gameplay such as it is. Uh, I've been looking forward to to talking about the mechanics because of course we get to have the fun of saying the mechanics are clicking. Uh, I, I managed to, to tease out a couple of different ways you click. I mean, you, you sometimes you have to time your clicks uh, with the quantum computing. And uh, uh, if you're going to withdraw from your investments, you need to kind of keep an eye on when you do that. You have to manage your wi- uh, resources. You can run out of wire uh, near the beginning of the game and, and grind to a halt. I think you get one chance to get out of that. You get like emergency wire, uh, a one-time thing. I accidentally managed to do a project that resets the game early on, which I wasn't paying attention. You go into negative. If you don't know what you're doing with the quantum processing, you can go into negative ops and then buy a project that's like minus 10,000 that resets the whole game. I didn't realize I was just mindlessly kicking. (laughs) That's amazing. I had no idea. (laughs) Because I was paying so little attention. I wasted about, you know, 45 minutes or something. Beautiful. Um, So more for me, definitely. But yes, you're managing resources. Uh, that you don't have infinite of electricity, drone replication and survival, um, ops and um, creativity, Yomi, that kind of thing. Uh, and also you're, you're sort of making, I guess, choices about when to buy auto clippers, uh, mega clippers. And, and I guess the main 
part of the game in terms of mechanics is really these modules that keep getting ad- added. Of course, you start off with you're making paper clips, then you're uh, having auto clippers, and then you're starting to look at how to market better and judge the price and, and change the price and that kind of thing. But uh, gradually you get projects that you can, uh, uh, I guess, commission or pay for. Uh, you get an operations budget and then creativity budget that you only gain if you have full operations. Uh, speculating on the stock market, quantum computing to help boost your operations budget, von Neumann machines and drones and combat module. And there's all sorts of, uh, there's a couple of others. But um, yeah, how how do you guys feel? Do you have any favourites? Did you Was there anything that surprised you the first time you played that sort of delighted you when it when it came along was that were there any that you really got into the nitty-gritty of trying to balance or were there any that confounded you um for instance i remember in the in the later game being a bit confused about whether i was trying to make i think it's when you're going out into the universe to make you can make factories and you can make mm-hmm. drones to harvest you can make drones to gather wire or something i was a bit confused about why I was what I was trying to balance and produce mm. and then produce power to power them. And I think I didn't get that the first time around. I think that's a pretty common experience. At least that was my experience as well. And I think from at least uh, one of the notes from either one of the panel members or one of the written correspondents earlier in the episode, like I think that uh, it kind of reflected a similar thing that on like towards the beginning of stage three, my progress pretty much ground to a halt, but also because the game it is kind of inconsistent in the feedback that it gives you. It's hard to tell that you're not doing the right thing until you're already like pretty far down that pathway. And so there is a very like particular balance of the different types of drones that you have to deploy that can actually kind of get a kickstart that progress again. So when you say stage three, more specifically, do you mean when you are, you've got the von Neumann machine and you can assign like uh, is it drone replication and then yeah, yeah. um survive hazard survival of the two i think you have to focus on at first seemingly yeah it, it's whenever you get the opportunity to choose between like eight different attributes that you can invest in i think yeah um right so yeah i think there there is a there's kind of a sticking point and i have to imagine with how carefully this does this was designed that, that was like an intentional bottleneck in a way i think there's a very kind of specific balance that you have to initiate to kind of at least get the engine started and then you're welcome to kind of like move things around and play with it a little bit more once you have that momentum but um but yeah i I got stuck for a while without knowing that i was stuck and then the longer that you're in that stuck state like resources are still kind of draining from you by that point you have so much it doesn't really matter that much but like theoretically i could see that getting to a point at which like you might end up in like a no recovery position but uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not really sure. I guess what was everyone else's like experience with that particular like bottleneck point? Uh, that was definitely a bottleneck for me. I, I, I think at that point, you're right. You've got so many resources. I don't think you can actually get completely stuck. I think you can at the start of phase one and two um, or all through phase one. And, and at the start of phase two, you certainly can. But it gives you projects, ops projects, to kind of get yourself out of it. Like if you happen to have bought too many drones and you can't afford a factory in stage two, it it allows you to kind of sell back some stuff and kind of get yourself out of it a little bit. But stage three, I don't 
feel like I could have got stuck there, but what can happen is all your production and your drone count just plummets to zero, and you've got so many things that you're trying to balance between what your your uh, seven different stats, what how you've got those balanced out, whether your drones are thinking or working, um, and and also how, kind of how you're balancing number of probes versus number of of um, drones and stuff. There's there's a lot of kind of balancing going on there. Plus, you're also being distracted by needing to continue the Yomi game. So <laughs> yeah. I, I certainly find myself a couple of times where everything just plummets to zero. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? I could always get myself out of it, but it meant playing around with things to try and work out how to, intentional or otherwise. I feel like that there's so much going on all at once uh, that it's difficult to know exactly how, how the balance is going. And the other problem is at that stage, you're already dealing with numbers that are so large that 0.1% suddenly becomes an issue because the growth happens or the 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 downward slide happens so quickly that like every time suddenly I would have loads and loads of wire and no f- and not enough factories to process it I click one on my factories and it just goes straight to zero like there's no starts counting down it's just zero because yeah. we're talking about numbers that are so astronomical that all it takes is a nudge in one direction and it goes and so you can quite quickly just get everything fall to zero and you're not sure whether almost whether that's a good or bad thing. Well, that's the thing is like in that final phase, those numbers that are kind of tracking the production of the factories and the the wire and everything, they're like momentum numbers rather than like yeah. production numbers. And so when they hit zero, you ask yourself like, does this mean that I am operating optimally at perfect efficiency yeah. without <laughs> yeah. leaving any side yeah. behind or over encumbered? Or does this mean that I'm falling yeah. way short of production? Um, I, I think one of the one of the points, like as you're kind of transferring from phase two to phase three, some of those currencies like Yomi and stuff that stop being useful at the end of phase two, because you've kind of bought everything that you can buy with them. Um, But you can keep that going. And it's pretty easy to keep that going based on your current kind of production trends. But the Yomi and those other kind of auxiliary currencies become very useful again in phase three when it becomes more difficult to restart production of those. And so there's also a little bit of like an advantage to delaying the beginning of phase three until you kind of have enough banked in this very comfortable sitting on top of the world phase two type of development scheme. And you never quite know, like, how much am I going to need to give myself a head start in phase three? But Hmm. I I found myself, I think I didn't understand how to initiate phase three or something like that. I was doing something that didn't kick that off right away. And I I found myself kind of greatly benefiting from that because I had uh, kind of an excess of, of additional currencies at that point. So some of the most fun I had is is sort of um, juggling numbers or riding numbers. So, for instance, um, right at the beginning, when you get the um, the project to see your clips per, I can't remember what it is, clips per minute or whatever, clips per second sold or you yeah, know, the rate. Second. You should get the chance to, to see the rate. Uh, but even before that, actually, when you're just you're riding the price of clips to make sure that you are that your inventory isn't bottom, bottoming out at zero, but it isn't ticking up so that you've got unsold inventory. So you just need you're just trying to balance it somewhere in between those. Yeah, you either want it slowly so that, falling or slowly rising as slowly exactly, as exactly. possible. Yeah. And there's so there's 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 instances throughout the game where it is just fun 
to ride numbers. It happens later with the electricity where you have storage for ele- for electricity. And if you make more, I think it's harvester drones and wire drones, um, you notice that the electricity you've stored starts ticking down if you've made too many that you then need to start making Yeah, you're power, balancing your uh, consumption with your, your power output, yeah. And just watching that number go up, like you, you make enough power units that it just ticks from going down to just going, you know, nudging it back up again. It's so satisfying. Just, just yeah, riding those numbers in small ways, like hitting the quantum computing uh, in just a way to get the the ops back up to then set your creativity back off. Um there's there's just some sort of really simple tiny little loops of number number manipulation in there that just keep you keep the game fun on a really kind of basic really basic kind of clicking level you know take away all of the story and everything else you know i wonder how long that could just that in itself could be fun for and then there's useless there's there's sort of what feels like comedy fun stuff like the yomi game to me just feels like absolute no garb you know nonsense gobbledygook it's it's silly it's fun it fits in but it does feel like complete nonsense to me um i kind of got into that one that was the one where i really actually yep. tried to optimize it just for the fun of it of like <laughs> which may not have been optimal because i was taking time between the, the the tournaments to be like well is this a tit for tat or a you know greedy situation or whatever uh <laughs> and just looking at the the game theory boxes Oh really? There was actual strategy to that. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 the it's just all kind of straight up two person game theory. I mean, tit for tat is kind of the famous optimal strategy to some extent because it's so simple. But you know, it's basically do whatever the last person, whatever the other person did to you last time, uh, and that actually beats a lot of strategies, more complicated strategies in these kind of uh, prisoners dilemma tournaments. Or Prisoner's Dilemma-like. That's basically the equivalent of playing uh, blackjack and just doubling your bet every time you lose, isn't it? It's like the idea that you're never going to end up overall losing that much because you'll always get it back with with tit-for-tat. Is that right, or am I misreading that? No, it's more... I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but the the core idea behind tit-for-tat is that you are letting the other person know that if they're willing to cooperate, you are willing to cooperate. Okay. But if they are not, you are not a pushover. Um, sure. That that you are you are brutal but forgiving. You know, uh, and and See, it is. I had, it's, I had it, no idea about this. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, it's something. This is the thing. It's coming from uh, the game center. You know, this this is something he has certainly lectured about to students at certain points and and talking about. Uh, Feedback loops. I mean, we were talking, you know, the, 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 the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest is a quote apocryphally credited to Albert Einstein, but is definitely, you know, and what I think, I think it was, Tom, you were earlier talking about, you know, space isn't infinite. This is not a immovable force or immovable object versus irresistible force situation. It is a, the irresistible force of compound interest against a universe that ultimately is bounded, uh, whereas compound interest approaches infinity in some sense, right? This this feedback loop. And Frank certainly has thought a lot about these kind of feedback loops in games and how you tune them and how you make numbers going up. You know, I don't I don't know what his opinion is on like Diablo, but I know that, you know, he probably has a fairly complex one that 
situates, you know, it's an addictive game, you know, it's got juice, uh, you know, what's good and bad about it. Um, it's kind of narcotizing. And, you know, this game is also somewhat narcotizing. And this is the interesting thing with Frank is that he is, I think he once used the phrase lick the subway, Paul, when he was talking about his attitudes toward like Facebook and Amazon in the sense of having an Alexa or really worrying about his privacy in that way. And he was just sort of being like, yeah, temperamentally, you know, you know me, I'm someone who, who kind of likes building up a little of the toxicities uh, mm -hmm. to resist them. Uh, you know, he is comfortable. He was the head of a department and he talked to rich and probably fairly unscrupulous people to get that department working. And and he is a good schmoozer and and good at those kind of like, you know, slightly morally gray areas, but where you're ultimately you're a leader doing things for the common good. There's a lot here that I think does tie into his core interests of game theory is is a huge one. He's a huge poker fan. If people are interested in, he's given many good talks. He's an excellent uh, speech giver, uh, talk giver, uh, has done several GDC. And he did one called Go Poker and like the Art of the Sublime. Or, uh, but, you know, Go and Poker are his two big games. Uh, and the game theory of poker, there's a, a achieve, or not achievement, a, a thing you unlock here called Donkey Space. I don't know if Anyone looked up that term, but that's basically the term for the, you know, the irrationality that that is the, um, the 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 sand in the oyster that creates the pearl of interesting poker. That not, you know, it's not being played by entirely rational people, and if you do play it entirely rationally, you are not playing optimally, and all of that crazy stuff. Yeah, it's play the people as much as the cards. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, here's an anecdote. I mean, it's fun doing this episode because. I live in the future, you know. I'm a I'm a visionary ultimately, but you know, it was it's uh, fun thinking about the last ten years. I remember here's a, what I think is a fairly amusing anecdote, and I've told it to several classes of students as both about Frank because they're always interested in Frank's stories. Uh, but when we're talking about game theory, there was a kind of regular low stakes poker game uh, for a while there. You know, once every week or two, Zach Gage's house or apartment, uh, you know, you put in ten or twenty bucks. And uh, I would go sometimes, even though I'm not a good poker player, I have no poker face. I, I don't like playing a game where the strategy is to not play the game and just sit there because I want to do stuff, you know, just temperamentally unsuited. But I liked hanging out with <laughs> those guys a lot. So yeah, whatever, you pay 10 bucks and you hang out with people for an evening. It's fun. But there was and Frank went both because he liked hanging out with those guys, but also because uh, he loves poker uh, and he would win a lot. And there was one week where he couldn't go. Oh, but he saw me at the game center and he knew I was headed over there uh, and he had seen me play poker. And he said, hey, uh, let me make you a deal when you you're going to put in your 10 bucks. And, like, yeah. and he's like, OK, the first hand, I want you to go all in no matter what. <laughs> and if you lose, I will pay you back that ten dollars because at that point, uh, ten dollars meant more to me than it might today. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was like, OK, I'll do this. But you have to end. Uh, and if you win, you know, well. And yeah, uh, I got there in the first hand. I went all in and I had terrible cards, but the other person who stayed in was bluffing with even worse cards and, and I won. And then that was the only night I ever did well at poker, that whole thing, because no one could, they all knew I was bad at poker and that I'm not a good bluffer mm -hmm. and just, <laughs> you know, again, temperamentally unsuited, but Frank had managed to play me or play them through me. It just this is 
pawn, essentially, uh, his willing pawn. <laughs> but that, I feel like, gets a lot of his personality across in various, in various dimensions. I think we should throw to James then, as the, it seems like, James, you went the deepest down the min-max speed run yeah. uh, uh, hole on this. So in terms of strategies and stuff, it feels like this this game because because you recently really got into like Hollow Knight and getting incredibly better than that, which is high skill ceiling, you know, Soulsy, Metroidvania and stuff. And this is a totally, totally, totally different game. But it's also and you were into Neon White, which is also very skill based, reaction based. So so what about this made you want to sort of improve? Um, I guess it's kind of what Ryan mentioned that especially Phase Three. It's so easy to not know whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And I thought, well, there has to be, a, a, through all of the numbers that you're trying to balance and juggle and keep an eye on, there has to be the one that that kind of pushes this forward the most. And in each stage, there absolutely is a strategy. Not necessarily one, but there is a strategy that will move this along much, much quicker. And the problem, as mentioned, was like in, in say, stage two, okay, I no longer need Yomi for anything here. I'm not using it anywhere. Oh, well, I can just forget about that then. And then you get to, to stage three and, and it's bitten you in the backside. So just from the point of view of, okay, I did this, but there were several points at which I was kind of lost as to what my next goal was. And then when the next ops project popped up, I was like, oh, I've not been focusing on creativity. I've been focusing all on, on just getting the ops projects done and um just bottomed out on creativity so then you're just it does kind of your interaction with the game kind of goes on autopilot for a bit until that creativity number gets up or your yomi number gets up or whatever it is and so i thought no there's got to be a way to make sure that to keep an eye on not just what i need to do now but what i'm going to need in five minutes or ten minutes time and kind of start planning for that and yeah, mm. watching a speedrun of this game it, in in as much as any other game where you look at it and go, this is a different game now, that's this. Like, stage one, the absolute f- goal is to get Quantum as soon as possible. And you think, oh, well, I've got 500 ops, I'll spend it on the rev counter. Or, oh, I've, I've well, my, my auto cutters aren't doing so well, so I've got a thousand here, I can put that into my auto cutters and they'll be more efficient. No, 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 no. The game tricks you into thinking you're supposed to be making paperclips. You are absolutely not. You are supposed to, in stage one, to be making money as much as possible, as quickly as possible. The paperclips just get you the trust you need to be able to do that, basically. It's all just one thing leads to another. Stage one, get money as much as possible. Stage two, get drones as many as possible. You have to do other things to get you there. Like you need you need the power stations in order to unlock um, thirty of them in order to unlock the continuous drone and factory efficiency upgrade for twenty thousand creativity. The mistake I made today was I could get the twenty five thousand double your Yomi cost and output. I I could get that way earlier, and I thought, oh wow, this is way earlier than I've been able to get this. Bye, and then didn't have the 20,000 for the continuous drone factory efficiency upgrade in stage two. And that costs you because you're not getting to where you need to be as quickly as possible. Um, And obviously 4,000% and climbing bonus on your drone and factory efficiency, which ticks up every second, way outweighs adding an extra 10 drones here or there. It's just not comparable. Do you think 
games like you know games with beautiful worlds monster hunter dark souls whatever it is mm. and even games in between this and those like football manager runescape uh eve online do you think it being so sparsely presented yeah. makes it more uh, not addictive, but more kind of compelling to you in the min maxing because it's just so clearly laid out. Yeah, so, it's there's so no clearly f- number go- there's numbers no up because there's so many numbers. To, yeah, yeah, you don't have to fast travel, watch a loading bar, uh, go to a particular vendor, buy ten thingy jigs, go all the way mm. back, get a chocobo, you know, sell ten of this, you know. Yeah, there's just none of that. It's all on one screen. The box is just a grey box. Um, do you think that actually helps rather than so, hinders, you know? This thing in competitive gaming, and it's in fighting games, but, but shooters is probably the place you see it the most, which is people buy insane computers with 165, 200 and whatever hertz screens, uh, graphics cards that can push out that number of, of hertz, and then they play games in 1080p at bare-bones textures because all of their graphical horsepower, they want to go into frame rate being as high as possible because it very, very slightly increases how quickly you see something happen on the screen in front of you. So Call of Duty, as a shooter, probably the best looking shoot, like the best looking, like I'll put hard quotation marks around that because I dislike best as much as Leon does. But Highest production value, Yeah, realistic. a lot of people look at that game and yeah, it looks, production. for a war simulator, beautiful. Like, it's it's pushing pixels, the art is incredible on it. You know, everyone's got that game that they look at and go, wow, that's jaw-dropping. And people will play Call of Duty and they will scale that back so far by virtue of PC versions being very scalable across different systems, they want to push everything that takes away from how fast they can play that game right down. And it all becomes as much as possible without it being, you know, wireframes or dots on screen representing what it might be. It's to scale it back so much to so they can just focus purely on the mechanics and it happening as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's a bit like the, um, you know, the training levels in Street Fighter or something with the, with the wireframe. So background street fighter 4 the training level ended up being played being almost the default go-to for what people wanted to play on because you didn't have anyone being animated in the background you didn't have any distractions but because it ran more stably on most systems yeah and and there is an aspect of that once you get that focused and and i keep coming back to it the more you focus on the very specific thing you you want to or being told to do by a game a lot of other stuff becomes distraction and this game has so much going on on the single screen you're looking at that there absolutely are distractions and there's times where i'm thinking oh i'll i'll absolutely start a new uh, tournament off and i'll cost myself sixteen thousand uh, ops that i then think oh i should have waited until the quantum was ready to go because i could have got that sixteen thousand back quicker yeah i was see see i had yeah i think if you if you've completed the game and you've kind of worked through it a couple of times Things like that do start occurring naturally, even yeah. if you're not trying to speed run. Stuff like when the quantums all kind of come up, you're like, oh, I should save starting a tournament to, to recover yeah, the ops. Yeah, it's going to be five then- seconds until the ops, the quantum's ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that, I think, I don't like the defense of this is just human nature, but I think it's satisfying 
to feel like you're optimizing something that is this mechanical in front of you. And so mm. it's satisfying that moment where the, the Yomi, the tournament ending, the game, um, game theory tournament ending and the quantum, cause you can see the last thing that happens before all the, um, the, uh, the quantum uh, photonic blocks come back up is they all scroll from left to right. And then when they disappear, you can count like two seconds and then they all start coming on. And the fact that I know how long, like I've started to get muscle memory about <laughs> what I can fit in before that, then it needs to be my priority. And and I think it is inherently satisfying that that's the case. And this game, like well, a lot of what we've been talking about is a lesson in whether we call it capitalism, whether we call it just the way our economy works, whether we call it uh, the endless chase for growth, whether, whether we think of that as human nature is something that if you get focused in on something very specific in front of you, either because you're told to or paid to or choose to or because it sends electrical signals in your brain, feels so good to do that. And then what you do, don't see is the stuff that's going on around and so the fact that this game doesn't put the the pretty colors and the the really nice graphics and you know it doesn't have that stuff on top of it it also doesn't give you the human feedback the human context that stories do this game tells a great story but there's no personal human center to it deliberately that's that's the point of the game and what it does is therefore just encourage you the same as looking at a spreadsheet the the notion of people making hum, human or humanitarian decisions based on figures in a spreadsheet is there's something weirdly broken about that yeah i i, I mean i actually think it does this the story a slight disservice in that if you are kind of focused on the maxing you don't actually read the projects properly you tend to just sort of click on them not read and that's where the story is told to some extent is in the yeah i think a first playthrough is like that because you're just so excited yeah. to get that project available yeah, exactly. you just click on it um but now like the the goal in stage one is creativity bonuses as soon as possible so you get your compute units then you just get creativity and you ignore any of the upgrade the ops upgrades you can get like you just mm. don't until you get ten thousand ops and then quantum and then you get 10,000 ups again and then it's your first photonic um I, can't, I forget what they're called photonic upgrade or whatever it is photonic chip, chip? thank you i think it's just photonic yeah. chip yeah and, and and so you like any of the paper clip making upgrades just get left like it looks ridiculous for a game about making paper clips yeah. that how little you are bothered about making paper clips it's it's worth um just very quickly touching on the different versions yeah. i think what I'm gathering from you and, and just generally my own experience on the mobile version is that it's perfectly pleasant, but you're, you just got to get used to sort of the vertical scroll up and down. And I guess there's something addict, there's something compulsive and addictive about scrolling up and down just specifically on the mobile version. And that kind of speaks to doom scrolling or whatever else we do on our, <laughs> yeah, our phones, true. specifically on smart smartphones mm -hmm. about, and also that I can like ignore my children and risk divorce by having universal paper clips going and just tapping away and I should be cooking or whatever else. And that's quite a different experience than, but I don't think you can min max. I don't think you could play the game in that same way, particularly well on the phone. Whereas it sounds like browser 
is something more you could have it up on a second screen you could have it up on another tab at work yeah you could leave it on your laptop running overnight and sort of that would be easy mode i guess and and or you could have it on while doing work or boring work or doing something else um and uh, but also browser would be the way to do it if you really wanted to min max or speed run it's got to be browser hasn't it uh, yeah, hundred percent. So uh, the way the what I would um, equate it to is for anyone, particularly on work computers, but just generally, who goes from a single screen to two screens on their computer, it's that feeling of oh, instead of having to navigate between windows or try and side tile things or whatever, suddenly no, you've got everything out laid out in front of you. And I think people generally say okay, two screens, but I'm not going to go therefore for three and therefore for four and therefore for five. And no one wants to get to that that huge Jackman in. Why am I blanking on the name of the film? Swordfish. Where, thank you, Swordfish. Uh, no one really wants to get to that stage where they're in the dressing gown with wine, dancing around, pretending to hack things. But there is that aspect of yeah, on a phone, it's it is that oh, I'll just pull it out of my pocket and do that now. It feels like a much more casual experience there but yeah when i got it opened in the browser that was probably the the sign of what was going wrong in my brain that's like the stocks and shares i mean that's more yeah the, the broker uh with his um his um terminal yeah or something like that i think we should have a bit of uh uh feedback on the i put this in gameplay but i don't know if it's it's particularly specific to gameplay because the feedback was all good it kind of covered the whole game but uh alex dola from patreon and the forum said i downloaded this the second it was mentioned on the series reveal uh, the volume reveal show back at the start of the year i've always tended to get a bit addicted to clicker type games i've played and i was immediately hooked by this one I played it through in its entirety three times, I think, and I, it managed to stay interesting all the way through, slowly adding new mechanics and bizarre situations. I found it really satisfying getting the perfect balance between production and profit. Make the clips too fast and you'll be running at a loss, but make too few and you'll sell out, which equally r- r- runs profit into the ground. There is quite a sinister undertone to the game when you think about what you're actually doing and where these paper clips are coming from. And I'm not sure it serves as a genuine tutorial on how to run a business. But I had a lot of fun with this and it really did dominate my thoughts for a couple of days. Halfway through day three, I had a moment of clarity whilst hunched over my phone, frantically tapping away and deleted it immediately. But it was great while it lasted. Yeah, I, I know that pain. What did you all think of the Von Neumann probe? That was the part that I generally found most uh, inscrutable. I, I I found the balancing the kind of production numbers and the wire and all of that, that I could wrap my head around that. And as I said, the game theory stuff I mm. actively enjoyed and the, you know, the quantum computing. I never I never quite figured out if there was some deeper pattern. But, you know, when all the lights are on, I tap the thing real fast. But, yeah, the Von Neumann probes, I always felt like I was muddling through and never um really understanding yeah um, I think we've, we've kind of already, I think we've already kind of covered that I mean it's oh. it's basically I think it's kind of a case of uh, early on for me anyway I just watched the drone numbers and then had to work out why they kept dropping to zero and then I was like oh okay they keep hitting hazards so then I thought okay I've got to put basically all your points early on into replication and right. hazard um you know avoiding hazards and then it, gradually ease off of once your numbers are up ease off of those into 
you know what else you think might matter because it's, it's not quite clear what does matter at that point other than those and then mm. you, the combat module comes in so you're going to need a you keep losing at combat so you think okay well i'm going to need those two and then combat to keep the growth going um and then gr- and then gradually exploration comes into it so as far as i'm aware i i started off confused by it but i think the numbers did kind of tell me what the what the right way to go was to at least finish the game it might not be in the optimal way but yeah i guess it's this uh with the earlier stuff there's some x number per second whereas the von neumann probe no yeah. i just don't know what they're they're i mean they're on a scale of one to ten uh but it's more i, don't, I uh, let me let me try to take this from a broader point because i don't, uh, but just the i think one thing with this game is that aesthetically it could actually have more useful a uh ui right that in theory it could use color in ways that did not um just festoon it but like made it easier to understand the different scales of numbers that septillion and octillion you know might i don't really understand the difference of those intuitively uh you know maybe maybe you make the word octillion bigger i don't know but my point is is that <laughs> this is an aesthetic right that this is not optimal ui what it is is a you know fairly usable and plain UI, but something that is really its main interest is in remaining kind of poker faced, uh, and 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 I don't want to say aloof, but it as a narrative device, right? It is trying it, it, to. It's a plain text aesthetic, isn't it? It's a default browser right, aesthetic, right? It's an intention. It's like the old McSweeney's website or something, where where this is a stance. And partially it's that this is very readable, but actually it's even more plain than that. Yeah, there's no way this game could give you tutorial tips, right? Like that would just break kayfabe in a way that you just absolutely can't do. And there's no way that this game could have juice in the way that so many of the advert games that I'm sure, you know, Frank worked on. and, And in some way you could certainly see this as I've done that and I would like to try to make the most juiceless game like this but that is still got that core addictivity and sort of like it is pleasurable for the numbers to go up but for maybe more cerebral or philosophical or narrative reasons (laughs) as opposed to you know every time i tap this the wizard squeals or whatever can you can you imagine if a stationary company did actually put their brand on this and really (laughs) oh their universal paperclips is a real type of paperclip he would he would hand them out i mean i don't think they I don't know if they've taken legal action against him. I don't it, know if they're it's, aware of this. It's generic, presumably <laughs> but, enough that yeah, it wouldn't be an issue. He does sell mugs and t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, but but it's like it, it's just the type of paperclip you find, and I think just the pun of that name just tickled him immensely. Yeah. Shall yeah. we? Uh, I mean, Jesse, sorry, did you did you did you reach a resolution of the thought, or, or we? Yeah, no, just, just that that kind of thing about like the plainness of it and how yeah. it is so much part of the narrative stance that it is actually, while very as you all were saying, you know, fairly usable UI. That like I do think there's there's bits of causality that maybe he would like to be clearer, but that would again, yeah, make it not d- distant enough. Yeah, it's it's very much stage three i feel where that becomes most apparent where you have to just play about with balancing those like the optimum strategy there is as thomas says actually you you don't want to be making any drones at all you want probes 
the idea of stage three is you are creating a hegemonizing swarm. You don't know it, but that's why it's called a von Neumann probe. You need probes. You need as many probes as possible. You need to do everything you can to have as many probes as possible. And what that means is it's a race to to initiate drift. It's then a race to get enough drifted uh, probes that combat starts. And then it's a race to lose as many of your probes as it takes that you can then initiate the name the battles and get honor so you actually want to lose the first part of the game you want to make as many probes as possible and then lose and then at that point you can start adding speed and combat in in order to start winning that and drive the drifters down as low as possible and you just want probes you just want the only reason you ever make drones is enough that you still have resources you still have some paper clips and other than that, you want as many probes as possible so that once you get to, it, it's about one nonillion probes, you then start dumping as many of your points as you can without bottoming out your number of probes into oh, exploration. And that, you know that, that oh, it's got it, it's ticked up to point zero 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 one, Yeah. And mm-hmm. then it's a little bit quicker to point zero 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 two, and it's a little bit quicker again. But it, it still takes a long time. Well, the idea is that as soon as you get a one there, you, it's a race. It's like watching a domino stack fall. It just yeah, yeah. goes uh, because you have so many Titanic. probes. J- James, I think you might... Are you sure you're a real person and not an AI? Because the way you were just <laughs> describing that kind of like but that's slightly dead, slightly deadpan yeah, voice. But you that's saying, oh, you've got to make think... drones, you've got to make probes. It made it sound like you'd sort I of... I need like more probes. Into... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, I think, uh, Jesse, your point is exactly right. I think... If the game gave you hints at what you were supposed to do, it would take away the shock of what it is you're actually doing when it hits you, because it's going to hit different people at different times. And saying at the start of stage three, your goal is to explore, even just saying your goal is to explore the universe, would kind of give away that the point is you are going to start devouring everything. And and yeah. you kind of need to fiddle around not knowing what you're doing until something starts working. So you get that pleasant scratch on the back of your brain and then you keep doing it. And it needs to it needs you to blindly walk yourself forward step by step until you look backwards and realize where you've been. I think this is a this you you've already actually kind of triggered a sort of discussion, I think, oh, about sorry, the, yeah, the story. No, no, no. I mean, that's great. It's perfect to seek into it. Let's just very quickly, I think, recap sort of where we come from with the story. There might not be too much more to say, actually. So in terms of raw actual story beats and progression, um, the game starts. We sell paperclips to humans. We earn their trust. (laughs) We cure uh, male pattern boldness, cure cancer, world peace and global warming. Um, that gives us of... more trust than anything, including curing global warming, which is <laughs> cute, of course. <laughs> and these are these are sort of um, you know black joke, black humor jokes, aren't they? You know, they they flash by. You might not even you might just press the button too quickly to even notice what the project was. But uh, I certainly didn't. But quite they're, they're grasp also what it was. They're about. also so telling that. You see that come yeah. up and you think, wow, my business is doing so well that we can cure this. That's amazing. And then you realize you're gaining trust for a reason. Yes, you're, 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 yeah. And then, of course, you um, release the hypno drones, which is possibly the most dramatic 
moment of the game with the, it was possibly the only special effect in the whole game the, the blink maybe the command com- from html <laughs> it's back and better than ever <laughs> apart from maybe the combat module with the little uh uh, uh bennett foddy's combat module with the little zippy things yeah. which does add, add a little bit of visual excitement doesn't it um but anyway we we, we hypnotize the human race uh, i think with mm-hmm. with hypno drains uh, rendering money useless and uh, uh, re- uh, issuing, a, uh, uh, ushering in a new era of trust, which is an incredibly sinister um, phrase in a kind of totalitarian uh, way. We harvest all resources of the earth, uh, organic life be damned. And that's possibly, you know, the darkest moment. I, I don't want to spoil. There's a AAA game I don't want to spoil, but a AAA game and now series with a really interesting core sci-fi story which is basically this um that i really loved actually in that game but i can't tell you the game because this is the core um spoiler of that game but it's really they do it really well in that in that game so so that it doesn't just have to be a very very small game by a professor to kind of explore these themes you obviously explore the universe you defeat the drift Uh, The Emperor of the Drift at the end game offers you a choice to be exiled to a new world as I presumably to be put into a computer as an AI uh, to be put into another simulation. I'm not quite sure. It's not quite clear to be exiled to a new world where you continue to live with meaning and purpose and leave the shreds of this world to them. And you can either accept or reject, accept uh, uh, essentially starts a sort of new game plus first cycle with some uh, some modifiers you can choose between uh, and you can carry on adding modifiers the more times you complete it if you keep accepting that choice. And that all you can reject, uh, with which has a kind of poetic ending where you uh, get rid of all your drones, shut everything down, and then you manually have to click the last few paper clicks into existence uh having used up all matter in the universe and then you get uh, you roll the very very short credits um at the top of the screen it's the story we've discussed it a lot actually as we've come across do you guys feel it's it's a a strong story are there any particular moments along the way that you that hit you hard as an actual narrative or were you so engrossed in the experience and this, this sort of tickled you along the way or, or, or how did you feel about it? Um, R- Ryan, how did you get on with the with the story? Yeah, I mean, narratively, it's pretty straightforward in that, like, the entire point of the game is to make, like, the presumption of a narrative happening, of a, of a pivotal narrative on the human scale happening in the background feel cold and impersonal. And so to that end we're not going to be getting the same kind of like characterization that we'd be getting in like an uncharted game, or we wouldn't be connecting to the story in the same way because it's meant to be impersonal and cold and scientific. Um, So, you know, in that regard, like, I don't know how I would necessarily like compare it on the scale of video game narratives, but I think for the, for the kind of morality tale that it wants to tell, like everything is communicated very effectively. I think it's, very well paced as far as storytelling goes and like kind of introducing that level of cosmic horror in there as well. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it does its job very nicely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've talked an awful lot in this episode and almost all of it is essentially down to how the mechanics are the story to me, like the, 
the names of the different um, upgrades and the names of like the von Neumann probes, those are um, are absolutely icing on the the cake. But the implication of what you're doing, it it it, it came to me through the mechanics, the seeing the numbers going up and feeling that that pleasant feeling, the where the the nuts and bolts of the story and kind of that um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, I think that's a really good comparison, actually, because a lot of that, yes, there's a very personal story, but a lot of the the humor comes from the absurdity of um, what's put in front of those characters and the absurdity of the names that it gives them. And that's where the flavor comes from here. Um, but the story is 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 as much about the mechanics to me as it is about, you know, there being an emperor of the drift. Um, it, it was already apparent to me what I was doing uh from the numbers uh and i think that's where i i felt that i felt that was a really cool uh kind of way for mechanics and story to sit very nicely alongside one another mm. it's it's funny when you point out the emperor of the drift because anyone who's played a FromSoft game and of course we have to talk about dark souls because it's a gain and rinse podcast in all the item descriptions in from software games one of the funnest things for the lord dumpster divers is all of the descriptions of places and people and things that aren't in the game. Um, you know, there's always like a, a, a witch of the fire mountain or whatever, or a, you know, catacomb of the endless undying that just, you never see mentioned anywhere else. And it's on a ring that you find at the bottom of the hardest place or whatever. And it's just evocative. Yeah. There's just, there's yeah. just these evocative throwaway, better written than what I just came up with there, things that just thrown in there. And that's all this game has. You know, this game doesn't have like graphically animated bosses and officially named places that you actually go to. In some ways, all it is, is those throwaway kind of, you know, evocatively named um, things from the, the from software item descriptions. Yeah, completely. And it does, a, it does a great job with them because in some cases they literally just flash past your awareness and if you're playing as fast as I am uh, on my first go through on mobile, you're not even stopping to read it half the time. But you're just you they're they're fun enough. What they're just fun words to look at. Hypnodrone, you know, frenopy. They're just they're just fun words to kind of turn over very quickly in your mind, even if you're you're not kind of grasping that kind of shadow of the colossus um, side thing. I think the end it does stick the landing. In as much as if you choose to reject and then you have to click those last, it maybe it seems a bit obvious that that's how you'd end the game. Like that seems like a sort of a almost quite on the nose uh, thing that you shut everything down and you have to do the last few manually yourself. But I still think it it works. I don't feel like it's cheesy to do that. To me, it felt feels kind of poet, poetic and nice and tying a nice bow on it. And actually, really that number being so large and, you know, the zeros just absolutely piling across the screen and you feeling like both empty and complete at the same time because you're like, wow, <laughs> I made that number go so high and I clicked the last few myself and I made it go round to a round number that is just so unbelievably big I can't even conceive of it. And yet, what did I do? What did I just spend my time doing? What was it for? What did I get out of this game? <laughs> you made the whole <laughs> what universe am, what into paperclips. 
Yeah, I've just made baby clothes. Well, I could have spent that time with my children. Ah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I quite I quite like the story for those for those reasons. Um, Jesse, how did how did you feel feel about this, the the was there any bit or, yeah. or is it quite hard to detach from you know knowing the creator? No, I I think the interesting question is so were were any of you familiar with like the Nick Bostrom paperclip hypothesis or whatever he calls it before playing this game or is no, it something you learned all. about through this? Okay, yeah, because that I think that's actually the big difference is it, as I said I kind of didn't really look at it when he was working on it. Um, and I only had a vague idea what it was about, but I basically knew from moment one how this was going to end and what I was going to be doing. Uh, because I was like, yep, I'm the paperclip maximizer. Uh, <laughs> let's start making some paperclips. And, and right. And that, that there was absolutely, obviously things, the hypnodrons in specific were surprising. Uh, but everything that came up, I was like, yep. And now phase two. And now we give people a bunch of money so they trust us. And now money isn't worth anything. And now the whole universe is paperclips. <laughs> Ice Nine in Kurt Vonnegut's, which book is that? Cat's Cradle, right? That That's sort of the, the ice that if it touches any other ice, like it's again a compact, you know, the entire world ends up frozen at the end of that. Spoiler. Um, the gray goo problem, I you know, is a similar just compounding feedback loop of everything becomes these nanobots. There's just something really good about, I mean, you know, a good philosophy. I know one thing Frank is extremely fond of is the nexus of sort of philosophy, math, game design, and poetry, which sounds very abstract. But the example I'm specifically thinking of is uh, John Conway, who made uh, the game of life, not the board game, but, you know, the cellular automata thing. Um Made a bunch of stuff like that. And and I remember Frank giving a talk once about the angel problem, which I will not belabor, but is basically you have an infinite grid. One piece is trying to trap the other piece that the, and it's like an angel and a devil. And, you know, the devil can remove a piece from the board or whatever. But and he was saying, look, this is a really interesting mathematical problem. But what really kind of makes it work is that it's the angel and the devil that that like that's the right little metaphor here and you have so little theming and juice to play with right it's like you know if you design a game with a regular deck of playing cards like the name you give it and maybe a few things are going to say oh this is a game about fighting as goblins or whatever but you know or we're collecting gold the diamonds are diamonds whatever but you know you have so little to work with that Every little thing you do is going to have enormous weight to it. And um, his very good friend, my good friend, Andy Nealon, uh, who created the game Osmos and taught in the computer science department at NYU, but uh, taught game, you know, courses at the Game Center, uh, taught a course on minimalist game design. And, you know, there there is a certain almost Ulipo like, you know, uh, it's like, you know, writing the novel without an E, I feel here of like. <laughs> How minimal can I make a truly narrative game in a sense? And uh, and the Dark Souls thing I was thinking about, which I'd never thought about before, as you were saying that, like that came into my head, the item descriptions, uh, which I think spot on, even though I think Dark Souls is a game Frank has read more about than played. Like, I think he played it. Some was like, I get why people like this, but it's not exactly for me. But it's probably read a lot of articles about it, talked to people about it. Uh, and certainly on an abstract level, I'd be completely unsurprised if, if if the way the item descriptions 
both sort of reflect this hazy reality, but also are the one place in the game where you're like, who is telling me this stuff? Like, who in Universal Paperclips is making the cheeky little comments like a new age of trust, right? And it's, it's yeah, the barest hint of a narrator, essentially. Um, I don't know. It reminds me, story-wise, if Donald Bartleby made games, sort of, like, like there's a certain... I, I, I'll just leave it there. If anyone <laughs> listening to this, you know, enjoys Donald Bartleby, you'll probably get what I'm saying. <laughs> well, we have a, a bit of uh, uh, forum feedback here from Quiet Paul, uh, who says, A fun and strangely addictive little game. It didn't go the way I thought it might, or at least I didn't get the impression it did. I had a feeling early on it would go the way of Skynet and the AI would eventually become self-aware and kick me off and take over all jobs and the complete domination of Earth. But it seemed to go down the route of me and my buddy AI taking over and dominating Earth and space together like a team, all in the name of making paperclips. I imagine one could, if they wanted to, stay on level one and continue to make a profit and eventually rule the earth after many hours of making and selling paperclips. I think the time it would take uh, to achieve that, though, would put anyone off. In my first three playthroughs, I I picked to continue on another world and start again. This grants a little extra token to get you through things a little faster. And by the end of the third playthrough, I'd knocked about two two hours off compared to my first playthrough. At the end of the fourth, I picked decline and broke down all my machines. And then a little credit sequence played at the top. That felt like a nice ending. Um, We have, uh, we'll carry on with a bit more. uh, Actually, quite Paul said uh, one extra thing that I put later on, but I might as well read it now because uh, of the way we've done the order. So he continues... One thing I will say is that it's quite a hard game to sell to anyone verbally. At least I found it so. Trying to recommend my fiancé try it by explaining, well, you make paperclips and invest in the paperclip stock and make money, then eventually it all becomes about making paperclips and using the finite resources of the planet to make more, and and by this point she's staring longingly at the wall behind me. Uh, and the last piece of uh, feedback we have uh, from Patreon Stephen Cookson. Thank you very much to everyone who wrote in. Stephen says, I played through to an ending of this game and I really don't know what to say other than what the hell did I do with my time? I'm not saying this was a terrible experience as it was very well designed with its ex- escalation and weirdness, but I have no idea why I played to the, to an end. The only explanation I can think of is that I was just fascinated with the rising numbers flickering all over the screen. It was strangely hypnotic. I recently sunk about 30 hours into Death Stranding and I have to wonder why game likers do this to ourselves. Why do we put a lot of time into these things that have very shallow gameplay, yet dangle a small thing or slight variation in front of us every hour or whatever to get us to continue on with it? I don't know if Universal Paperclips or any other clicker is any sort of comment on these sort of games, but that's what I'm going to take away from it anyway. Um, Just in terms of that, uh, I did have a very quick look at the genre. According to Anthony Pecorella in his GDC Summit Talks, the first idle game was attributed to Progress Quest in 2002 by Eric Fredrickson, which was a parody of uh, MMORPG stats and auto-attack. Which, uh, so so to answer the, the Patreon feedback, um, I very much think a lot of, well, certainly Ian Bogost and Cookie Clicker, I could be, uh, sorry, Cow Clicker, I could be wrong about some of this, but 
some of this genre has been a you know critique of video game numbers go up and and RPG mechanics and kind of yes that yeah. that. Uh, I mean, Cow Clicker debuted at one of the very first NYU events I ever went to before I was teaching there that where Frank had organized. I don't even remember. It was, it was, I remember it was him talking about free to play and Facebook games and debuting Cow Clicker as kind of his, you know, uh, argument in a sense, uh, you know, our ob- ob- objectives argument. Uh, and Zach Gage, uh, showing Lose Lose, which is the game where it's like Galaga, but every alien is a file on your hard drive, and when you shoot it, it permanently gets destroyed. I think it's still classified as a virus, despite the fact that it's very straightforward about what it does. Uh, <laughs> so, but I, I, you know, I'm Frank is very good friends with Ian. Uh, they've known each other forever, and certainly... You know, the, the irony of Cow Clicker, which was meant as like the most debased parody where you could you could click the clicks of other people's clicks on Facebook. I remember, you know, I got into it because all of my normie friends were playing the actual clicker games and it was my passive aggressive way of, you know, uh, being even more dumb. Uh, but it became a real game that people really liked. And, you know, there's an interesting article from Ian about that. And. I mean, Frank likes these sort of gray areas a lot, uh, you know, where, again, like that quote you found is the perfect quote of like, this is a debased form. You know, this is a... That's a culture. Got a form, right, right. And there's a very, you know, he reminds me a little of Art Spiegelman and that side, of, you know, hyper-intellectual, but very interested in bringing the low into the high and a lot of respect for things that are maybe considered crass if they're also extremely intelligent. It's a game by an intellectual... I think depending on how much you know about sci-fi and have enjoyed sci-fi, you're going to get a bit more out of the jokes in it, particularly in the naming of things. And for instance, I didn't know anything about game theory. So that whole Yomi module is meaningless to me in a way. Uh, and I was just clicking on any old thing and setting the tournaments going. I had absolutely no idea about that. But because intellectually you, you you grasp that and know a lot about it and and uh that it means a lot more to you and i guess you could say that about several different elements of this game that at its most base level it, it isn't really a clicker is it it's a it's still really a kind of a both a skill-based sort of resource management game that can be min-maxed and speed ran and it's also quite an intellectual um, story th- with deep thematic and philosophical, uh, uh, you know, ideas behind it, and, and so the idea that actually that Universal Paperclips falls into the idle genre alongside certain others. I'm not going to say it any particular titles because I don't know them well enough to kind of say, but but it, it doesn't feel like it fits particularly well. I think the distinction that we need to make when we're talking about the kind of incremental genre of games is that like it's one far end of a spectrum rather than being like a distinct thing of its own. This type of idle game, like even though like when presented really straightforwardly, like this game or like Cookie Clicker or like Adventure Capitalist or something like that, it does come across as like satirically shallow in a way, (laughs) Um, just on like a Mm. pure mechanical level, but it's it is kind of a continuation of like a spectrum of like, if you think about, if you compare like dark souls and action RPG to something like persona five, 
as a turn-based RPG where you have like suggestive control over one character in a battle. You know, you can tell you can tell your main character which attack you would like him to do, but you're not actually performing that attack yourself. It's a pre-animated sequence that applies once you've made that suggestion. And then the other members of your party just, you know, you can give them tactical, like broad advice, but, you know, they will do their own thing as well. And so, you know, it's like, in a in the sense, you are managing the team. You know, the football manager games could be classified as, incremental games if you want to view them that way i played uh injustice 2 i, I really like injustice 2 uh the nether realms dc comics fighting game and um towards the end of the game once you've kind of exhausted all of the different like modes and stuff you are just kind of like grinding for uh grinding for like costume pieces and stuff like that which i i found really rewarding i like kind of giving all the superheroes like very unique and custom looks and stuff and kind of playing that role of the artist and creator in a sense and then taking those into the fights myself but i I found that one of the best ways one of the most time and energy um, efficient ways um to to gain those resources that you need is to essentially like queue up a bunch of battles of individual battles but you can set the CPU to fight the CPU. And so you don't have to be directly involved. You have to press A at the end of a battle to progress it to the next one. But essentially, like at that late stage in the game, it becomes kind of like a superhero management type of game. And we've seen that kind of thing <laughs> incorporated as like a side mode into, you know, I, I actually really like those side modes, those little mini games in Assassin's Creed where you send off, you know, assassins that you've rescued from here and there to go to a distant shore somewhere else and do some sort of off-screen battle and come back with resources like all of this like that is incremental gameplay like that is exactly like what the genre is doing it's just like really distilled here and so you know i think like it presents itself satirically but i think there's also like a really kind of fun basis to this that is not like wholly divorced from the actual gameplay of games that people consider like proper games quote unquote you know yeah i think um so just on that i think soap operas are something that are often seen as fairly lowbrow entertainment and they're easy to make fun of but when you try and make fun of a soap opera inevitably you end up making something that is just as compelling as soap operas are to many many people and you start to see that well actually soap operas do a lot of the same stuff that Game of Thrones does. Arguably, that's just a soap opera with fantasy stuff on top. You know, there's not that hard a distinction between one and the other. And on the and a bigger um, costume budget, but yeah, yeah, and 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 whether the names are familiar names to you or whether there's something a bit more weird and exotic and fantastical. Um, but uh, another perfect example of that, um, Ryan. You're absolutely right. You can automate those battles in um, in in Justice. And I think you can do it in Mortal Kombat as well. And worse than that, if you've got a controller that has a turbo button, because it doesn't need your input when the CPU is running, you can just set it to auto punch A, and it will just sit there and do it because i did it while i was working i just had that on next to me <laughs> racking through and i just checked every so often yeah we're still good carry on with my work so you can automate the game even further than that to the point where you don't even need to press a if you don't want to <laughs> you know and that's a game that should be very uh intensively played normally but 
that option can be taken out of it. Well, at that stage, I would say, well, cutting to the chase, <laughs> you would say the the systems of like rewards in AAA games in that specific example are broken because you're not playing you're not playing the game but you are playing football manager that is developed that way like we have to admit that like well, even no, no, if it's sorry, not like specifically, action gameplay like there is an element specifically of like in the example no i know specifically in the example of mk11 and injustice like like those if you've played the game for that long you really enjoy it those costumes should be yours Right. So, so what, what I'm saying is if you got to the point where you're using an action button, mm-hmm. you know, thing, or you're pressing the CPU versus the CPU, that's just a broken reward system to me. However, unless that is inherently um, I, I interesting to, to you. Well, yeah, like the Assassin's Creed system, like Metal Gear Solid 5, or, but, 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 but just on, on the point of like championship football manager or, or this game. I I find these these fun and they sort of justify themselves their own existence as games in and of themselves and the kind of the management side of it is interesting uh and rewarding and stimulating so yeah I mean that's just on a on a very sort of surface level reading of it but it's a fascinating example you brought up Brian another professor Charles Pratt uh contends that the loot cave was still the best part of destiny ever um <laughs> just the pure just yeah but yeah, that's it. It depends what you want out of the game. Yeah, but if you if you want those costume, is it? Do you want those costumes, or do you want to try and game MK11 and Injustice Two to see if you can beat the reward system by taking yourself out of it? Because if that's the interesting part to you, then fair game. Anyone can find any part of any game uh, system interesting, and of course, you know, everyone find their own fun. That's that's totally totally valid. We should read out our three-word reviews now, I think. Um, we're going to go in the order. We've only got five. So, Ryan, take us away. Quiet Paul from the forum says, release the hypnodrones. Alex Doler from uh, Patreon says, Soylent Green Shades. I just have to explain that one. He wanted to say shades of Soylent Green, but it's four words. So he, he had a little crisis and he was like, how do, I, how do I explain this one? How do I get it down to three words? So that's the best he could do. I actually think that's better because it... It simultaneously says shades of soil and cream, but also is like the little uh, visor Homer Simpson wears when he's doing his taxes. <laughs> uh, Stephen Cookson, also from Patreon, says Jeff Bezos simulator. <laughs> Scott Lamond from Twitter says number goes up. And Tolkien Taters from Twitter says pensive paper clicks. Okay, well, we've come to our summaries. Jesse, I think you should you should send us off in summary and tell us, uh, give us your closing thoughts on Universal Paperclips. One of the memories this has prompted is is from far before I started working at the Game Center when I was, I don't know, five or six, which was getting a TI-83 calculator and discovering that if you put in like one plus one and just kept hitting plus, it would go up one each time you did it. And I recall doing this for a very long time. There is just something, and and I think there's interesting questions about how much of it is sort of has to do with money and has to do with that number, you know, dominant capitalism, blah blah blah. But I don't think it all is right. I, I I do think a lot of it is just the sheer majesty of infinity and just a, a very metaphysical appreciation of you know numbers being able to go up forever. There's a uh, an excellent article called uh, 
what is the biggest number? Uh, I believe it was Scott Alexander, but I'll look that up. But um, uh, about, you know, what's the biggest number you could write in 30 seconds and, and sort of the history of mathematical notation and trying to express, you know, these these gargantuan, uh, not infinity, but still beyond the capability of humans to really comprehend. Yeah, I think this does what this kind of game can do with that concept extremely well and is leaning it's a good match of form and content because frank is very smart uh and again there is a certain kind of like high concept but follow through aspect that i think uh the the best work that's come out of the game center from people generally you know has kind of a a summer a thing you can summarize doesn't get over its skis kind of has its point and gets out and i would say that about ape out which is a very different game this is an interesting game to look at in the lineage of Cow Clicker, but also Candy Box in a Dark Room, which were brought up earlier. And a game we didn't mention that isn't really a, a progress game, but I do feel uh, Frog Fractions. Right? Uh, the the mm. bottom drops out and now you're somewhere else and you're in some other type of game kind of thing. And Candy Box in a Dark Room, even though they're incremental games, very heavily lean on that. And I think this has less extreme stuff about that. There's not like an arcade section, but I do think that it is trying to to do that in a more minimalistic way. And I think is is very successful in that. I would have enjoyed playing this and thought it was very funny, even if it was made by someone uh, totally anonymous. It's a joke that I was ready to get and um enjoyed even if i did get you know again sort of slightly stuck and confused sometimes because the you know the the game is uh is erring on the side of diffidence there is something that will stick with me about it in the same way that that calculator anecdote is stuck with me for 40 years uh because it does put you inside a very interesting math just issue of the world, which is that, uh, yeah, feedback loops, man. They just keep getting bigger. Ryan. Yeah, I'm going to be pretty brief on this one. I think that it's a very, uh, very elegant game for exploring a very interesting thought experiment. As far as like presentation type of elements, it's, it's fairly minimal. Like Jesse said, like it chose the appropriate form to tell the story that it was trying to tell. Uh, it, I think it benefits from its minimalism and its kind of straightforward nature. I appreciate that unlike others in this kind of incremental game genre, it is um, mercifully kind of short in that it kind of tells its story and gets out without, you know, dragging out over days or weeks or months. And um, it's, you know, I, I don't know if I need to recommend it to anyone on like a consumer review type of level because it is free there is no barrier to playing this one probably less than any game that we've ever ever covered on canon rinse before it is freely available even to people who don't have computers or consoles or any type of you know you have to have some like just the bare minimum amount of hardware to interface with this but you can play it on pretty much anything it takes not in completely insignificant amount of time but it is kind of a background thing that um, you can kind of check in on while you're while you're doing other things and um, I don't know if it's something that I'm going to like throw on when I have a free afternoon and I need like a, a thrill but it's the type of game that I'm really glad to have 
the types of conversations about it that we've just had and to have it kind of prompt these types of ideas that I don't think about as much as I could. And, um, you know, it's just a really elegant way of kind of introducing these ideas into the game space. It feels like a really kind of well-made and well-designed version of what it is. You know, there's that the one bottleneck that we talked about around the beginning of phase three, where we kind of have to readjust a little bit and that that continual forward progress that we've been used to up to that point is kind of ground to a bit of a halt which could be seen depending on what you're kind of going into this for as a bit of a pacing error maybe <laughs> but i think it's more of like a like a pop quiz just to kind of like slow down make sure that you're still kind of paying attention it's the like are you still watching button that netflix throws at you it gets you to re-engage with the metaphor on like a linguistic level when you could have, you know, to that point gone into full numbers mode. So, you know, even that, which is like the only time at which like my experiential interaction with it had like a little bit of a hiccup. Like I still feel like that serves like an important design purpose. So I'll just say like very elegantly is what it is. Low barrier to entry. There's no reason not to check it out if you haven't already. Wow, that you you've both said so much there. That's that's brilliant points. There's really not much for me to add personally. I just I think on a in terms of it being gutter culture, I'd say just even on a really basic level, just on mobile, if you think if you like clicking on stuff and you think you like an addictive little game, that finishes quite quickly. That's the important bit. That ends potentially unless you want to speed run it like james and keep going over and over it just you can it ends and you can just delete it maybe you'll play it twice but it you it, i promise there'll come a moment where you're like actually this is stupid i need to just get rid of this but i had fun even if you don't want to think about the huge themes that, that come along it's still just you can play it as a funny and light thing if you're interested at a basic level and kind of maths and compounding and numbers go up there's just a fun little game here. Um, you know, we've talked about some pretty heady stuff and and the philosophy behind it and the thought experiment and stuff. But the first time I played this, I had none of that in mind. Um, and I still really enjoyed it and really stuck with me. And, and it's from that first experience that's the reason I, I sort of brought it to, to Kane and Rince and, and nominated it for this volume. And then it's only in doing the research for the volume and replaying it and having this wonderful discussion with an incredibly intelligent panel that I've, you know, added all these layers of meaning. And I kind of knew that would happen. I knew that that the deeper stuff was there, but I can make a strong recommendation to people if they're interested in just the numbers aspect of the numbers go up aspect of it. It's just a fun light thing. If you have any interest in, you know, the intellectual side of game design and the uh, then it's probably a must play, I'd say, on that side of things as just sort of a, a punctuation mark in, in game design and comment on game design and, you know, the history of the genre of clickers. And yeah, I think uh, also if you're at all interested in visual design and demark, as I was saying earlier, this sort of idea of demarketing of stripping back of what happens when we stay very Puritan, uh, uh, as Jesse said, like write a novel without the ease, like 
what follow through that like what happens if you make a plain text game with absolutely nothing visually going on barring a tiny bit of flashing html and some little dots flying around the screen at one point but other than that there's nothing there's there's no color there's no you know it is as bare bones as you as you get um so, so that's an it's kind of another interesting angle to come at it if you're an sd and you and you sort of like to uh, explore different games um, from that angle. You know, if you've just come off 150 hours of Elden Ring and you want to decompress somehow, maybe this is the game to just sort of change change track, you know, cleanse your mind a little bit, go to something completely different. Uh, and it's well worth uh, at least trying it out. And it's so quick and easy to, to just try it out and find out whether it's for you or not. Easy to get addicted to, but easy to finish as well. So, um, yeah, make sure you put it down and don't get too too far down the rabbit hole because uh, I did find myself, you know, <laughs> ignoring my children at certain points and uh, wandering out of the room and maybe having a, a slightly longer toilet break than than was necessary just to, to click a few more times or check the Yomi was, uh, was going up. I'm sure it was worth it in the long run in the course of my life in this infinite universe. So... <laughs> so uh yeah J- james i i have a feeling you're the most positive uh, as far as these things go with a game like this uh what are your closing thoughts i don't really know how to be positive or not about this game it just kind of is uh so th- when i said i was preparing for this podcast uh i got a tweet from retrospectus podcast and they said you should probably read some e&m banks in preparation hegemonizing swarms are a pain in the and Soft places. They didn't say soft places. I'm editing. I started reading up on Hegemonizing Swarms. I've now started the Culture series by Ian M. Banks. And that series takes kind of heady philosophical uh, notions and personalizes them. And this game doesn't personalize. Uh, and um, one example I like to give of that is the way it presents Hegemonizing Swarms is you have a population of probes. At some point, an error is introduced, a drift is introduced, and that separates into two populations. Those populations are still seen as entirely discrete populations. Uh, you're either drifted or you're not. And as an allegory for mutation, as an example, that, that's a, a terrible oversimplification. You never have a fully stable population and then just drop a mutation in, and then you only have mutated and unmutated. That's not how mutation works from a genetics background. But also, as we all know from the past few years, epidemiology has become something that we all need to know a little bit about. That's not a realistic uh, model, but it's a model that allows us to understand things about ourselves. And so a a very simplified version of what would happen if, uh, if an error was introduced into a large population and what a very small percentage uh, population can suddenly grow into a much bigger problem in the case of this game. And so, Having a very stripped down, simplified game that asks you to focus very, very specifically on the problem in front of you and then allows you to see the bigger picture, in this case, in my perspective, in horrific uh, uh, scale. To me, this is about capitalism and how we run our economy and um, how, how politicians make policies. And it is absolutely a cautionary tale. And my experience of that should be all the evidence that's needed. I was so focused in having seen 
all of the horror that this game had to offer in my first playthrough, all of the the as I say, all of the allegories to to the what I would consider passive, malignant, largely evils of this world. Um, when you strip away the personal story, the humanity from from the way we run things. I decided that what I would do is nearly break my wrist playing this game over and over and over and trying to optimize it over and over and over. That's that's ludicrous. Obviously, I know there was no human cost to that besides my slightly sore wrist, but it's ludicrous that I saw the allegory and went ahead and did it anyway, but that is exactly what this game did, and that is incredible that something so stripped down and so exposed in terms of what video games and and the way that we think and feel and and act in this world uh it can strip it down to this browser game uh and and make me draw and all of us draw on all sorts of different comparisons and touchstones and ways it made us feel and think is incredible very well said i think we've exhausted our creativity and run out of yomi uh, I've been your host, Tom Quilfell. I'd love to thank Ryan, uh, who's also editing, of course, Jesse and James, as well as our correspondents, and all of you for listening. Next time in issue 536, that's 536, we are covering Virtua Racing. <laughs>